Hello, and welcome back to Cruise Competes Cruise Podcast, where we share tips, ideas, and inspiration to help make your next cruise a fantastic experience. I'm your host, Bob Levenstein. With COVID-19 vaccines thought to be arriving shortly as an early Christmas present, one topic on everyone's mind is what will travel look like as we get to the other side. My guest today has a great deal of insider knowledge about the aviation industry and their plans going forward. Brian Del Monte is president of a full-service marketing agency for aviation and avionics companies. Brian has had a fantastic career in consulting, marketing, and in government as part of the Defense Department's Global War on Terror. We'll be right back with Brian and his insights into flying, and hopefully some great stories from his career, right after this. CruiseCompete.com is a simple concept. We give you the tools to find the perfect cruise and request quotes. Independent travel agents can then see your requests, and they respond with the best custom cruise offers they can, all competing to offer you the best deal. You compare these offers in one convenient place, along with consumer ratings and reviews of the agencies. As only the best agents survive in this competitive environment, you'll have some great options to choose from. You then remain anonymous unless or until you decide to contact an agent by phone or by email to ask questions or to book. Find out why more than a million cruisers are members of our free, unique service and start saving both time and a significant amount of money on your cruise vacation via Cruise Compete today. Our guest today is Brian Del Monte, founder and president of the Aviation Agency. Brian, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Well, I'm really interested to uh, to hear what you're hearing out there as you talk to your clients. Um, but before we get there, you've worked in a variety of industries over the years, medical devices, software. What is it that drew you to specialize in aviation? Sure, that's a that's a great question. And my whole team um, at the aviation agency, uh, we spent, you know, 30 or more years, um, all of us selling all kinds of products. I've spent 30 years. You, you recapped a little bit of my my history. I've done a bunch of things. But but my whole career has basically been um, around trading words and ideas for profit and actions. Right. We want people to do things. And so what led me to establish this agency where we focus only on aviation, aerospace, and defense was this. When I was a kid, I wanted to be a pilot. I saw Top Gun just like everybody else. And uh, basically, the naval recruiter said, that's great, Brian, but you're too short and your eyesight sucks. So thanks for your interest in national security which was a story I relayed actually to the chief of naval operations when I worked at the Pentagon. I joked, well, you know, you had your opportunity to have me 20 years ago and you guys blew it. So anyway, um, about five years ago or four years ago, my wife, I was thinking about, you know, hey, I'd like to learn to fly and things like that again. And, you know, I'd always done flight simulators and things like that. And I know a lot about flying. And so my wife and my kids uh, got me a discovery flight which for people who don't know, you can pay about $100, go to a flight school, and they'll take you up. And you can try flying. It's very safe. It's very accessible. Um, you're with a highly qualified instructor who at all times is really responsible for the airplane. You get to play pilot, 
Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and in my case, you know, I went up. I knew a lot. I actually got to do a lot of flying and everything. My my instructor, oddly enough, we had a lot of the same background um, mm-hmm. with Department of Defense experience. So I took this discovery flight, and uh, in my previous time in agency life, I had handled aerospace and defense because of my time at the Pentagon. And so I knew a fair amount about that type of sales, which is which is different because you know those companies, you know A and D companies, they they have a very limited number of buyers. The primary being the United States government. <laughs> okay, sure. so it's not quite the same as. As like if you think about Bombardier or Gulfstream or somebody like that, okay, it's not quite the same. But anyways, I spent time at FBOs and I spent time engaged in all this. I was really struck by just how poorly the marketing was. And rather than just jump in, um, I spent two years trying to understand what I saw. And what I saw, I would characterize this way, and, and I realize my characterization is flippant, but um, I believe it to be true, which is most of our competitors in this space, and I'm talking about agencies that either have some aviation clients or agencies that are explicitly aviation only. They all tell a story that essentially goes like this. I was a pilot once, or I worked at an airport, or I worked for an airline, or I worked for a charter company or whatever. And I designed a brochure once, and I decided that was way more fun and exciting than what I was doing before, so now I do that. And so they sell on the basis of, hey, we understand your world because I'm a pilot too. Got it. And our, and our background and what we, you know, what we do for a living, our craft is we know how to sell product. I've sold grills, sports stadiums, you know, getting them funded. Uh, my partners, you know, liquor, food, um, beer, um, fast food. Uh, I've sold hotel rooms. I've sold, you know, basically you name it. You know, I've probably tried to sell it. And what we, what we thought about with respect to the industry and the aviation agency and the reason why we felt an aviation agency would be worthwhile and it, and it has been resonated very well is we know the craft of advertising and marketing. And this industry is so driven by um, sales and needing to generate desire for people to buy their products that we knew that if we brought a very high level of the craft to the industry, it could really transform the lives of these companies, which, I mean, when you get on board an airplane, you don't think about it at all, okay? There are literally hundreds of millions of man hours involved in everything regarding your entire experience from the second you arrive at the airport to the second you leave. There's so much craft, so much engineering, so many lives and the heart and soul of those people that gets poured into making that experience so effortless that we have a lot of admiration for those people and those stories. And so rather than selling soap or you know, detergent or beer or, you know, hotel rooms or whatever. Not that those things aren't important, too, but they just didn't make us as excited. Uh We have a passion for aviation, but our craft is advertising and marketing. And so I'm like, let's see if we can apply our craft to something we think is cool. And so two years ago, the aviation agency started. That's how we got there. Uh Well, that's that's a great story. Um, Yeah, I had a a guest on, uh, I think you know, uh, Fran Hume. Yep, I noticed his link to you, and she was telling me about how they ended up designing seats for a uh, 
uh, for an airline. And, you know, you get there, you sit in your seat, you never think twice, but uh, I ended up, you know, going and seeing uh, some of the uh, materials that they had on their website about how they put these things together and how they tested them and designed it, and that's just one tiny piece. Right. You know, if that $100 million or whatever that airplane costs, it's, it's really pretty right. amazing. Right. So what's, um, what's the mood among your clients these days? Is it doom and gloom? Are people starting to be hopeful? Well, there, there's still a lot of, uh, doom and gloom. Um, you know, the, 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 what happened in March is pretty much an unprecedented catastrophic event for the industry as a whole. Okay. Um, commercial aviation is by far the most visible and the largest sector of the broadest definition of aviation. Okay. Um, and it went from making what it made in revenue a week to making that in three months. Mm-hmm. Now, most people can't take like a 90% haircut in their revenues and survive. Okay. Yeah. So that's, so that's what happened to them in, in effectively by April. Okay. And so, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, the government programs did provide some relief. Um, the, you know, my position and, and my clients and the people that I talk with and the people who are interested in talking to us, they understand that there are winners and losers in any kind of, you know, crisis and upheaval. Sure. And essentially the position I've taken and the position I've had clients take is, look, you know, which side are you going to be on, the winner or the loser side? And there are plenty of businesses I talk to that are like, oh, my God, COVID, we don't know what to do, you know, and they, and they get paralyzed. Sure. Okay, and they're still paralyzed. Um, and then there are businesses that are like, well, look, we'd like to not be out of business. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so, you know, even even at the worst of it, when the economy was, you know, down 35%, which I'm pretty sure is, um, as an economist, I'm pretty sure that's unprecedented in our history. Um, and and even then, though, that means 65% of the economy is working. Right. Okay. So while uh, uh, commercial aviation is taking it on the chin, okay, again, winners and losers, I talked about in April that business aviation is going to be a winner. And if business aviation couldn't figure it out over the next three years, then they deserve whatever happens to them because it's never going to be as easy and good for them as it is now. You can't find a turbine aircraft to buy. Okay, you can't find a jet. If you want a private jet, good luck, because they're all snapped up, because everybody who needs to travel, who can afford private aircraft, that's what they're doing. Charters are having a hard time growing because they can't get their hands on aircraft. Okay. Um, There's been a huge uptick for charter overall. Now, granted, it's been a kind of a seesaw ride. It went up and then it like hit the floor and now it's back up again. Um, but, you know, long term, there are going to be displacements from all this. And so our clients are reading the tea leaves and saying, OK, look, we have to be engaged. We have to market. We have to create desire. We have to do these things. And so some are optimistic. Okay, and some have reason to be optimistic because, for example, in the business aviation sector, the long-term prospect for them is pretty good because commercial is going to be 
slow to come back, just the nature of how they're going to be able to turn the boat and everything. And right now there aren't like, you know, just to take New York, for example, I'll bet you for every one flight between Chicago and New York, there are 20 flights between New York and Mexico for excursion travel, because that's where the demand is right now. Okay. And so with, you know, part of what held business aviation back is there were always like 30 or 40 flights a day, every hour in first class going to X location. Well, that's not going to be the case going forward. So you're not going to be able to control your time as well as you could. So business aviation is going to prosper as a result of that. Um, How much of that too is, you know, people are finally have been forced to be comfortable with, I'll use Zoom and I can get just as much done. There's a lot of that. I mean, there are, you know, one of my my passions and I study is habit formation. There are going to be permanent, durable changes to business as a result of coronavirus. And one of them is we're not going to be in the office as much as we used to be. And we're not going to be face to face like we used to be. Now, this is a challenge for the airlines. They need to do something they haven't done in 40 years, which is actually advertise and generate desire to travel. Okay, so so they're either going to accept that challenge or they won't. I realize it's self-serving for me to say that, but they've kind of presumed demand, at least for the last 20 years. Um, and I'd say, honestly, you know, um, for the last 40 years, they've kind of presumed that people will just use aircraft travel. Again, because it was so ubiquitous and it was, re- it was re- you know, reasonably cheap and it was readily available. Um, you know, the triumph. Well, I think of, on the leisure side, on the leisure side, it's going to come back with a vengeance. Yeah, I would think so as the vaccine rolls out and people get to travel again. But in terms of business, you know, Zoom yeah. and go to meeting and all those things, that's not going to go away, in my yeah, opinion. It's, it's going to change. You know, most businesses are going to be matrixed, which honestly, for our business, COVID didn't do much because we were already matrixed. I've been working yeah. this way and working from home or a remote location for a while. I don't have an yeah. office, you know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We've been a virtual company since uh, 2003, so it's uh, and I think it's going to be real. What's really going to be interesting is the you know what, what are cities going to look like 10 years from now? You know, why do you, well, you know, New York paying those high taxes? Yeah, James Altucher had a um, you know he wrote his op-ed piece, which then you know enraged. The other half of New York, right, with Jerry Seinfeld basically saying, go take a flying leap. Um, And that's putting it, you know, kind of mildly. But, you know, I mean, look, Jim's right in his in his spidey sense on this. Okay, Um, there is going to be an exodus and that's going to cause some real long term problems for urban areas because of the taxation demands and the infrastructure demands predicated on that taxation base. You know, and if New York slips back, I mean, you know, I'm old enough to remember when Death Wish was a commentary on the reality of New York City, not some fictionalized account. Okay. And it was murder capital of the world, you know, and if it slips back into that, you know, that'll be a real problem. I mean, you know, I know it's hard to understand today when you look at this man with shoe polish running down his head, but he, you know, was largely America's mayor because he cleaned up New York City. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, and, and so, that was thought to be uh, impossible at the time. right. That's right. You know, yeah. and so, like I said, I know it's hard to appreciate that now, given what you see, yeah. but, um, yeah. 
but cities are going to have a hard time. And, you know, when I look at, and I have friends that are real estate agents, and they're like, I'm selling homes by doing Zoom calls. They don't even actually see the house in person. They, and they, and they're leaving Chicago and New York and Houston and LA. And so all of, you know, what I saw like a couple of days ago, right? Goldman Sachs is thinking of taking one of their divisions out of New York and putting it either in Orlando or Texas. Yeah. Both states with exceptionally lower tax incidence. Yep. And that essentially gives all those employees a raise. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I, I mean, I read a really interesting piece um, talking about the effects of wealthy people leaving a city. And, you know, first off, obviously, yes, they're paying the lion's share of the taxes. But once you get past that, they're also supporting a lot of the things that make the city a tourist destination. Right. You know, the museums, the Broadway shows, you know, the uh, the symphony orchestra, a lot of these things rely on grants on gifts, you know, right. you come in, you That's see right. all these plaques of the $50,000 donor. If those people right. leave, they don't really have a reason to support these things. Um, well, they're going to support them the elsewhere. Yeah. So you're going to start seeing great museums, although, you know, we'll have to see if this happens. You may start seeing sure. great museums in Florida, something you currently don't see, right? Oh, no, it's <laughs> so, a dolly museum. <laughs> but yeah, no, like, I know what you're saying. But, yeah, but... You know, I mean, we'll, we'll have yeah. to see if this is a long-term trend. I mean, when the vaccine yeah. comes back, will the allure of the Big Apple recover? You know, I, I tend to believe Jim's right in the short term, but Seinfeld's probably right in the long term. New York has gone through a lot of convulsions over the years. And it's, although it is stunning, right, to go from in February, right, they were down like, they were short like 20%. In housing, so they needed 20% more places of, for housing in the city, and now they've got like a surplus of like 18%. That's a big swing, isn't it? You know, I, I, um, I don't know. I've, I've never really understood why someone would be willing to pay so much money to live in a, you know, uh, not very nice place uh, that's cramped and inconvenient when it's uh, just so much easier to live other places. You know, I mean, I live hey, in Iowa. You. It's very, very easy to live here, and if I want to go somewhere, you know. That's easy. right. Look, but, I mean, yeah. having, yeah, having having done destination marketing, you know, I'm with you. But, but you know, different strokes for different folks. People, there it. are people who it. just love the allure yep. of, you know, Gotham City. So, anyway. Um, so, um, how do you see 2021 playing out for aviation and the travel industry in general? Here's what I think is is likely to happen. Um, I think Q1 and Q2 are still a tough road ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Q3 is the beginning of the end and the light at the end of the tunnel. I think Q4 is truly on the road to recovery. And I think 2022, Q2, Q3 in 2022 is when we're going to be like, whoa, thank God that crap's over. Okay. Um, I, I think, and, and the challenge boils down to adoption and distribution of the vaccine. Okay. Um, the, the undertaking to vaccinate the, the United States and to vaccinate, you know, not to be critical or pejorative about it, but most of the inflow and outflow inside of the United States and elsewhere is with the rest of the other developed world. Okay. So Canada, Europe, 
Asia, China. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, to a certain extent, you know, Latin America, Mexico, and South America, right? So in order for everything to be able to flow in and out of the United States and to feel confident going on airplanes and cruise boats and excursions and all that stuff, we need to have a high enough penetration on the vaccine where everybody feels comfortable. It's about feeling, you know, sure. like oh, it's all about feeling. Yeah, right. And so, given what I suspect is going to be the vaccine supply, it's going to take eight months to get enough of a vaccination penetration in the United States. Maybe ten months. So we may go all the way into October of next year. Um, to get enough penetration that coronavirus is declining in new cases and not growing, that ICU beds are not being overloaded, and so it becomes manageable, okay, again. Um, I think by April we're going to start seeing that trend because we'll get enough people vaccinated that we can start to see, oh, hey, you know, this is actually working, which I think will encourage people. But my understanding is essentially we're bandwidth throttled in just how fast we can make vaccine and how fast we can deliver it, even with all these candidates, um, because these are not particularly easy compounds. They have to be stored at very low temperatures. Um, they have to be delivered by competent staff. You know, they're going to be, you know, and I'll just be frank, the president's approach on coronavirus is a, is a hindrance. The fact that we don't have a strong national strategy on delivery, on, you know, leaving it up to states to figure it out, not having it properly funded, that's Congress's fault, too. I mean, I'm not going to lay it all at the president's feet. It's just in general, the federal government's response on this has been pretty pathetic. The one thing, I'll just interject this real quick. The one thing I realized is, is that if the walking dead ever happens, we are so bald. Okay. <laughs> I mean, because because this is a relatively benign virus in the in the grand scheme of things, right? And I'm like, wow, if something really serious ever happens, we are so inequipped to deal with this. Um, well, I think generally, you know, we tend, to, we tend we tend to do more damage to ourselves uh, when any crisis comes than the crisis itself does to us. You look right. at things like 9/11, but I don't know. Right. I think what's interesting to me is. There are a lot of people getting this every day. Right. And for practical purposes for the next year, it's really the same as those people being vaccinated. Um, you know, this thing does not tend to reoccur. Yes, there have been a couple cases, but it's pretty damn rare. So I'm really wondering, because, you know, anytime you have a big, you have a big month like we've been having lately where you have – you know, 150,000 positive new positive tests in a day. Uh, the first question is how many people are actually getting, you know, uh, how many people were not tested, uh, or right. how many people just had a cough for a day and didn't bother getting tested, or how many people were asymptomatic, and is that number 40% or is that number, you know, is it 40% of the people who get it who are asymptomatic, or is it 80? That's the range the CDC throws out there. So the right. question really is how many, you know, how many, how close are we? to really having some kind of herd immunity. I don't think we know. And the other thing I don't think we know is, are there people immune to this? How many people are immune to this? Because uh, I think there, there's got to be some number who had immunity to begin with. And it's going to be different, you know, different different states and different different countries. Germany clearly has something going on there that's different than the rest of the world. Uh, well, 
Well, I mean, if I can put my national security hat on for a second. Sure. Um, here, here's how, here's some, here's some things to think about. Okay. Um, we, we don't know what, um, you know, what, how the ball truly bounces. I saw something a couple of days ago based on, um, blood transfusion data where they found antibodies, COVID antibodies and blood transfusion samples that went back to November of last year. Yep. Okay. So, so, and I'm not a pathologist. This is not my, my expertise, sure. but I do do a lot of reading as a former, you know, national security policy expert. My thought is that, um, the vaccine is the strongest, easiest way to mitigate the challenge. Now I have had coronavirus. I either had it in, in March where I actually did feel sick and I was in hot spots. I was in New York. I was in Charlotte. Okay. I, I had very classic symptoms. Testing wasn't available. Okay. I went, I went to get antibodies, you know, the antibody test. It was negative. Now my daughter four weeks ago had a COVID positive test. She came back from, from college. We were all in close and continuing contact with her. Okay. The Minnesota Department of Health said you should all assume for all intents and purposes that you were all infected. So we didn't go out for, you know, 15 days or whatever it was. And none of us developed any symptoms, but the three of us had been sick back in March. So maybe prior exposure does, does provide immunity. Okay. But the problem is, is that, you know, we don't have, when you're inside the crisis, it's very hard to analyze what the heck's actually happening. Okay. Oh, no, I think, right? I think we'll have and a so very that different type of, understanding. Yeah. I think we'll have a very different understanding. Yeah. Of this, uh, two years from now, three years from now, which makes prediction hard. Right. Right. And in the middle of it, it's really tough to know what to do. Okay. But we know that the vaccine provides durable, um, immunity. We know that the vaccine will tamp it down. I'm going to get vaccinated, even though I've been exposed. We don't know that prior exposure creates durability. We don't even know with the vaccine how long the durability is going to be. It may wind up being. We haven't had it long enough to know. Right. But I'm, I'm very encouraged when they did the, they did the, uh, the T cell studies. And they found that people who had SARS, you know, 17 years ago, right, still have T cells that react. So uh, that's right. There's a lot of reason to believe. People, I think. We're, yeah. we're, I think we're going to be good. I think so too. And so rolling out the vaccine in the meantime, taking steps to mitigate everything, strikes me as the least dangerous, most effective path, which is what I usually look for. You know, yeah. when I would advise. By principles, sure. I'm like, let's, this is the option that gives us the greatest flexibility with the least downside risk. Right. So, but you I, mean, know, I guess the other thing I would say, here. though, is if you've, uh, you know, once you've had the vaccine, um, you know, they're yeah. already experimenting with these immunity passports in other parts of the world just because you've had, you know, you've had right. a positive COVID test followed by a negative one that you're okay to travel. I think that's going to be rolled out. Uh, in a big way. I've been vaccinated, so okay, you know, you can come into our country and you don't need a mask and you don't need to do any of these things because you've been vaccinated. And I think that's, I think that's going to be a big boost for travel because the people who want to travel, you know, they're going to go, you know, make the extra effort to make sure they get that vaccine. Um, yeah, and I, and I'm totally fine with that. Um, I, I'll tell you one position I have taken and I've taken it since the beginning is that all of that, passport stuff or sharing all that data or coordinating all that, 
that's all an inherently governmental activity. So it shouldn't be left up to Delta Airlines to figure it out. Yeah. Okay. It's an inherently governmental activity, and we need to work with our uh, partners and other international institutions, just like we do, by the way, on every other aspect of travel. Okay, travel is an exceptionally regulated industry. I know from the perspective of the traveler, they don't see it. But there are a lot of international conventions and institutions that govern being able to have access and move around. We can leverage that institutional framework to ensure that people can move around safely as we roll out the vaccine. And at some point, it probably won't be an issue anymore. Right. I mean, I see that by, I think by the time we're, we're through April. A good percentage of the people who want to have the, you know, who want the vaccine will have been able to, to access the vaccine. I think so. I think so. We'll see how fast they're able to roll it out and how fast they're able to produce it. But definitely by the end of next year, we'll probably have, you know, 250, 300 million people vaccinated. And that will be a threshold. You know, somewhere in that range will be a threshold that the rate at which coronavirus will be able to spread will be declining. Okay, so so if the R not factor, right, the replication rate can be brought significantly under one, then coronavirus becomes less and less of a threat, even if not everyone gets vaccinated. Oh, I, you know, I, I think I, you know, with 350 million people in the country, I don't think you need 200, you know, 250 million. Well, we'll see. To get rid of this thing. We'll see. The numbers Especially will drive. Number I mean, I'm all like, yeah. Because the, the other well, we'll thing see. I, I mean, that like very well may be true. Yeah. The other yeah. thing that I would like to see, and I have not seen this survey, um, you see these surveys that say X percentage of the people say they won't get the vaccine. I would like to know how right. percentage of those people have already had it. And they're saying that because they, they've already had it and they don't think they need it. Um, so that, that, well, I would like well, to see we'll that. We'll have to see. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, we'll have to see. I mean, the, unfortunately, the tyranny of the numbers – Really don't lie. Okay. I mean, you can do back of the envelope calculations, like based on the number of people that traveled over Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. I did back of the envelope calculations. And unfortunately, those calculations are proving to be pretty balls on in terms of what we're seeing in hospitalizations, what we're seeing in increase in the death rate and everything else. And the problem is, is, is that we do have enough statistical data to understand and how I've characterized it has been like this. It's Russian roulette. Five out of six yep. times, the gun just goes click. There's no severe problems. But that one in six times is pretty brutal. Right. And so, if, you know, the people that wind up being hospitalized, you know, a good portion of them die. Yep. Um, thankfully, most people don't wind up hospitalized. But it's enough that it's crushing our infrastructure uh, at the moment. And so, you know, uh, the tyranny of the numbers we can't escape and the numbers are going to tell us when you know when when the numbers start declining mm-hmm. we'll know we're making headway okay right. when when you know there's, there's a fair amount of resistance to mass mandates to lockdowns and, and i totally appreciate why okay i really do um we have completely screwed ourselves over economically and and culturally in many ways trying to deal with this virus um, you know, but the numbers will tell us when we're winning it. Okay. When the R not goes down, when the number of new cases go down, when the number of hospitalizations go down, when the number of deaths are all declining, you know, week after week after week, 
well, no, we're making headway. I sure hope you're right, and that's April yeah. instead of October. Well, I guess <laughs> I here's really the other did. question. Here's the other question. Um, hopefully, we're going to start you know, with uh, vaccinations in the next couple of weeks. They're going to be targeted, right. obviously, at how do we prevent the most vulnerable people from getting sick, whether it's right. directly vaccinating them or vaccinating the people who are likely to come into contact with them. Um, right. You know, by the end of April, anybody who, you know, really wants to make an effort to get this shot should have been able to get this shot, I think. You know, hopefully we'll have at least three we'll vaccines yep. out there. Um, but here's right. the question. If by February, uh, everybody who yep. has a, um, has a secondary, um, has an underlying condition, you know, everybody who is over 80 years old or over 65 or 70 or whatever, you know, the cutoff right. is, has gotten vaccinated. What does that right. do to the playing field? Uh, the death rate should drop quite a bit within a couple months after that. And does this really just become mm-hmm. a, a flu that's not really all that serious because the people who, you know, are likely to get very sick from it have already been vaccinated? Well, that would be a great outcome, wouldn't it? And the amount of, of economic activity and travel is directly correlated to how fearful people are about the death rate. Right. So, you know, if you're right about all that and it, and it, and you could very well be, if you're right. No, about I'm not, I'm not actually, I'm not actually positing that as a theory. I'm just, I'm, I'm positing that as a possibility. I, you know, I don't, I'm right, right. So, about this virus because of, or right. predictions because I've been wrong every goddamn time. So, <laughs> but let's, but let's assume, but let's assume that pans out. Well, then that would be a, that would be a very positive sign for everyone and for the economy and for travel. And, you know, there could be a, a nice boost, right? Um, if we feel the vaccine, if we feel the vaccine is effective and working, then people will, in their minds, carry that out logically to some endpoint through to the future. And we'll start making decisions today predicated on what they believe to be the final outcome. And so if it really turns out that Moderna and Pfizer and Johnson and Johnson and all these things and they all work and they're all 90% and it's all kick ass and it's just a matter of money and time, then there's going to be a pretty dramatic turnaround. Um, I'm more skeptical at our ability to get our hands around these things Mm -hmm. and do them correctly. And maybe I'm just jaded from my time in government. Uh, well, let's change words for a moment. Let's talk about that. You went from graduate studies to the poli-sci department in um, uh, University of Washington or Washington? I'm sorry. No, George what, Washington uh, University. George Washington. Part of George Washington. There we go. George Washington, D.C. Uh, to the department. Yep, GW. Yep. To support the global war on terror. Yep. Can you uh, tell us how that came about and uh, and what you did there? Yeah, so when I... So I moved to D.C. I wanted to get a doctorate degree in international relations. And um, the first year I moved there, I moved there in July. And obviously 9-11 happened in September of 2001, which was the year I moved there. And I witnessed 9-11 with my own eyes. Wow. Uh, I spent the next several years trying to work for either, you know, the intelligence community or the national defense community. And one day I get this phone call from a, from a guy who would later become a friend of mine. 
And he says, um, yeah, you sent us a resume like two years ago. Yep. Are, are you interested in, in, in working at the Pentagon? Hell yeah. And he goes, well, wait a minute. You might want to hear the full, full story first. They said, we need, we need someone with your skills. We need someone with your background, but I can't pay you. P- possibly never. <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm in. And the guy's like, really? And he, and I'm like, yeah, I so desperately want to lay boot to those assholes. You better bet I'm in. Uh-huh. Okay. And I was in a position financially where I didn't need uh, a paycheck. Okay. Uh-huh. So my first day at the Pentagon was Donald Rumsfeld being shocked and appalled at the abuses at Abu Ghraib. I'm like, holy cow. You know, so my first day, I worked in the Office of Detainee Affairs. I don't even think it was called that yet. Okay, it was like a detainee working group or policy group. I started working out, working in the Pentagon for Thomas O'Connell, who was the Assistant Secretary of Defense um, for Special Operations and Low-Intensity Conflict. Sounds super sexy, but the reason why this office was was under that department at the time was because one of the things that SOLIC does is um, stabilization operations and civil military affairs. So we set up um, governments essentially in areas that we occupy. Okay? And that's an activity in the policies and how we do that and, and all that happens under this group. Okay? And so one of the other groups though under SOLIC was basically um, uh, getting our uh, uh, soldiers and their remains back home or, uh, detainees, uh, you know, RPOWs, okay? Any of you that saw Good Morning Vietnam, okay? The guy who ran DPMO was Adrian Cronauer, the person who, wow. who Robin Williams fictionally plays. They wrote that movie, yes. Um, I, I, the, 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 the actual Adrian Cronauer was very funny and very clever, but, but couldn't hold a candle to Robin Williams' portrayal of him. Um, but but anyway, um, so so there are these groups, right? These policy groups that are under SOLEC, and detainee issues was one of them initially. And it later got its own office, and it was moved directly under the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, which is a very powerful organization inside the Pentagon. Okay, policy, you know, as we refer to it, policy really does all of the civilian policy thinking, strategy, policy making in DoD. Okay. So I get this call, hey, we're going to work this issue, you know, uh, and I need somebody with your skills. And, and basically when I found out what it was, I said, okay, boys, I'm going to just make you a deal. Because I had been a trial consultant and I had worked for some pretty crappy companies that had done really horrendous things. But because I believe in the system, okay, and believe that, you know, especially in, in American jurisprudence, that the truth wins out. I said, okay, tell you what, everybody's entitled to their position in their defense. But I want you to give me everything you possibly can. And I want to really understand what happened here. And if, and if I think you guys are just, you know, uh, uh, you know, sadists and jackasses, I'm, I'm leaving. And, and my boss, you know, said, okay, fair enough. So I got a security clearance. I came in, I read everything. And what I realized was, is, okay, look, there were so many mistakes. You know, we had mistakes by the bullshit in the Pentagon, mm-hmm. but this was not a deliberate activity. 
This was not a planned activity. This was not a government-sanctioned activity. That the detainee program had a lot of problems, but it was a necessary byproduct of the GWAT, and that the intelligence gathered from detainees was essential. So I said, okay, I'm in. Let's fix this problem. And um, we spent then the next four years trying to get people to really understand what detention did, why the abuses that happened happened. Um, basically, it was because of criminals and sadists in reserve elements that ran those prisons, taking matters into their own hands. Um, and, and I worked with our allies and Congress and, um, elsewhere to take, a, you know, to, to take a view of what was really going on, which was these were dangerous people, especially at Guantanamo, which is what I mostly focused on. These were exceptionally dangerous people who, because of the nature of the conflict, we couldn't just have walking around. Now, the administration made some some early blunders in the legal framework and in explaining the legal framework. You know, it's not that the Geneva Conventions don't apply to unlawful combatants. It does. They just don't say anything particularly useful for unlawful combatants, okay? <laughs> Would have been a better explanation. Yes, the Geneva Conventions perfectly apply, but there are no combatant immunity protections for unlawful belligerents, which is exactly what the position of the law actually is. Okay. So we didn't do stuff like that. So I spent a lot of time doing stuff like that, getting people to understand, you know, and nobody liked it. I didn't like it. It's antithetical to like, you know, truth, justice, apple pie, on B in the American way to lock people up forever with no hearing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, but that's no the nature choice. of that conflict. Okay. Right. Yeah. You know, and that's the other thing I don't think people appreciate with respect to government generally. It's never hot fudge Sunday crap sandwich. That's not, those aren't the choices yep. that most policymakers get, right? It's either like gigantic crap sandwich or slightly less big crap sandwich. <laughs> and so, you know, it's, it's always, a, it's like which, which one of these choices are the least painful to, to, you know, to do. Um, I mean, if it was, so, if there was an so, obvious, uh, you know, hot fudge Sunday choice, there wouldn't be a choice. It would just be done. And it's not what we'd be talking about. That's right. That's right. Right. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. It's always, it's always mitigation. It's always, you know, but, but in that case, you know, I used all my skills and I did speech writing. I, I think I testified before Congress like 20 times, although not wow. in any, Forum where you'd see me on C-SPAN because they were classified briefings. Sure. Um, I was involved with um, when we made the undocumented holding facilities public. I wrote a lot of that stuff. I wrote the speech for the president um, when he, you know, bits and pieces of that. Um, I did Gang of Eight briefings. Okay. Um, I've given speeches before the Council on Foreign Relations, before Chatham House, the UK Parliament. Um, I've done briefings of our allies, uh, and, you know, it, it, it was a really tough issue because no issue other than the U.S. adherence to the death penalty so galvanized both our friends and enemies as detainees did. Right. It came up in every meeting. 
George Bush is going to talk to, you know, Japan about trade issues. First question, what's the deal on Gitmo? Okay, I mean, that's how pervasive it was. And it was every newspaper, every day. I used to have to watch my job every Sunday. I had to watch all the Sunday talk shows because it was always in the news. And so, you know, that issue, you know, uh, really clarified for me a couple of things that I've used later in advertising, which is feeling and not fact actually matters most in how people make decisions. How people felt about that issue was more important than what people knew about that issue. So we spent three years trying to turn down the temperature, in part by being more transparent and, and explaining to people why we made the decisions we made. And we had to mea culpa on some of those decisions. Right. But, uh, uh, you know, it was an amazing time. And, and I, I ultimately gave up pursuing my doctorate degree because I was actually – the true story. I was doing my comprehensive exams and I had done really well, really well. And my professors were basically chiding me, saying I was a brilliant mind and I was wasting my talents working for the government. No lie. I ended up uh-huh. getting, getting beat up over this because I'd done so well. And they're like, we don't understand why you're doing what you're doing. And in the middle of that, I was actually being pinged by the secretary's office going, where the hell are you? Uh-huh. And at the end of, of their tongue lashing, I said, okay, I guess I see it this way. I can either write about the Super Bowl or play in it. I guess I'll see you guys later. Uh-huh. I got to make policy and travel all over the world and do things that most people in international affairs would give their left nut for. Sure. So I don't regret my decision. Uh-huh. Wow. Incredible stories. Well, it's been a real pleasure hearing your insights today. Are there any uh, last thoughts you want to share with our listeners? Yeah, I, you know, I think, um, you know, with respect to travel and coronavirus and everything, you know, it, it's going to, life is going to change. I know it is so hard and it is so depressing, right? <laughs> I mean, it's just, I don't care what side of the spectrum you're on. It's just all very depressing, right? Have faith that things are going to change because they are. Lots of people are working very, very hard to, to change things. Okay. Their fruits are going to come to, to market here soon. And, uh, I really do believe even in the worst case scenario, 18 months from now, we'll be like, thank God that's over. So, you know, it's not going to be crappy forever. Well, that's, uh, you know, I'm, I think we're all hopeful it's sooner than that, but, uh, Are you still I, there? I get, yeah, I'm still no. there. I, uh, I think we're all hopeful it's sooner than that, but I get, uh, get where you're coming from. Okay. Thank you. Uh, my guest today has been Brian Del Monte, founder and president of the Aviation Agency, a full service marketing agency for airlines and aviation companies. Thank you so very much for being on the program today.
Thank you.